This last week, as I was flipping through the pages of an old journal, I reread what I once wrote about a conversation I experienced with a spiritual director just a few years back. In the course of that conversation, the spiritual director asked me a very specific question. Eric, he said, to what are you living your life? To what are you living your life? And my first response was to clarify the question, and I said, do you mean for what am I living my life? No, he said, I'm asking something different than that, a bit more precise. Think about it, he said. Think about your prepositions. That preposition for implies an intended result. For example, he said, we work for a salary. We go to school for a degree. We engage in physical exercise for the health benefits. But that other preposition, too, that implies something different, doesn't it? It implies connection, it implies relationship, it implies a willingness to be vulnerably subordinated to something. For example, he said, we give ourselves to someone in friendship or in love or in marriage. We devote ourselves to a career or a family or a goal. And so he said, I'm asking you this very specific question. He said, I'm just asking you to think about it. To what are you living your life these days? Which is to say, what is the primary or priority shaping reality toward which you are posturing your life and to which you are consistently offering your life? I think it might have been the first time that I considered the very real possibility that every soul lives its life not only for something, but to something. Now, some of you might think that's a lot of weight to place on a single preposition, and you might be right. You might be right. On the other hand, there was a first century Christian leader by the name of Paul who must have had something like that on his mind when he wrote his letters or his letter to the Christian churches in Rome where there would have been people paying close attention to what words Paul used and how he used them. And in the scripture that we heard moments ago from Paul's letter to the Romans, we find these words. We do not live to ourselves. We do not live to ourselves, nor do we die to ourselves. Rather, Paul continues, if we live, we live to the Lord Jesus. If we die, we die to the Lord Jesus, so that whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord Jesus. And by the way, I'm of the opinion that the translation of Paul's Greek here is spot on because that common Greek preposition that is translated to is precisely the same preposition that we find, for example, to describe Mary's relationship to Joseph in the Christmas story. So that when we get to that story, and it'll just be a few months, friends, but when we get to that story, we read together, not that Mary was betrothed or engaged for Joseph, but that she was betrothed and engaged to Joseph, implying the intimacy of connection 
relationship. In much of the same way, Paul seems to be saying, when we are in relationship with the living God through the person of Jesus, we are betrothed, connected, offered to God. Not for God, but to God. In a manner that infuses and impacts and shapes and perhaps even determines every other portion of our living. Therefore, that question from that spiritual director was an appropriate one, I guess. And I borrow the question to offer it to you on this mid-summer Sunday morning so that you might be thinking about the same things I am this day and that maybe Scripture inspires us to ponder. To what are you living your life these days? Which is to say, what is the primary and priority-shaping reality toward which you are posturing your life and to which you are offering your life? I'm so drawn to the imagery of a poem by um, Lee Young Lee entitled From Blossoms. There are days we live as if death is nowhere in the background. Isn't that a great line? And that's true, isn't it? There are days we live as if death were nowhere in the background. From joy to joy, from wing to wing, from blossom to blossom to impossible blossom to sweet impossible blossom. And I believe that those poetic words call to mind precisely the kind of forward living, if I can describe it that way, the kind of for, forward living that characterizes a life of discipleship lived to the Lord Jesus. It is a purposeful kind of living that is being described, a hopeful kind of living, a joyful kind of living with a joy that transcends the particularities of the circumstances. A generative living, a visionary living, the kind of living in which we might move forth from blossom to blossom to impossible blossom to sweet impossible blossom, which is to say, friends, that this life that is being described in Jesus, this life of discipleship lived to Jesus, is not fundamentally about having all the right doctrine. And it is not fundamentally about attending to a particular job description. But it is fundamentally about moving ever deeper into the always blossoming love and life of God as if death were nowhere in the background. If we live, Paul writes, we do not live to ourselves. We live to the Lord Jesus. Hold that thought. So in this morning's gospel, Jesus turns his attention to what I can only describe as a really hard spiritual practice, and one that he seems to believe exists somewhere close to the heart of what it means to live the life that Paul is describing, this life of discipleship lived to the Lord Jesus. And this hard spiritual discipline to which Jesus turns his attention in this morning's gospel is the spiritual practice of forgiveness. So let's take a deep breath and let's think together for just a few moments about why Jesus might be focusing so hard on forgiveness. 
By the way, one of the things that bears witness to just how challenging a spiritual practice forgiveness is, is that whenever throughout my ministry I have preached or taught on forgiveness, I can normally count on two or three people seeking me out specifically for the purpose of telling me about the things that cannot or should not be forgiven. And it's a daunting list, my goodness. The harming of a child, the murder of somebody, mass shootings, crimes against humanity. And I love those conversations, I truly do, because they reflect such deep and sensitive hearts, hearts that are struggling with this forgiveness business. And my sense is that those convictions about the things that could not or cannot or should not be forgiven emerge from the idea theologically and spiritually that forgiveness means the abandoning of accountability, which I do not believe to be the case, by the way. In fact, I'm convinced that biblical forgiveness does not mean abandoning accountability. It does not mean sidestepping important and necessary consequences. It does not mean minimizing the significant and devastating aftermath of people's sins and crimes and atrocities. Rather, I'm convinced that biblical forgiveness, the kind of forgiveness that Jesus is describing, biblical forgiveness is nothing more and nothing less than a stubborn refusal. A stubborn refusal. I think that's the right language to use. And more specifically, it's a stubborn refusal to locate the perpetrators of those sins and crimes and atrocities somehow outside of the boundaries of the very same divine grace by which we are living. A divine grace that according to Scripture we are not to limit according to our preferred categorizations, much as we might want to. Think about it this way. We do not forgive actions. We forgive persons, which enables us to be relentlessly attentive to an ongoing accountability for the actions while at the same time resisting the urge to dehumanize the perpetrators of those actions. Now, let's pause to be realistic with one another because we never want the church to be pie in the sky. Let's pause to be realistic with one another. There will be times when we need to rely on one another to do the forgiving that we are not yet able to do because of our proximity to the offense. And isn't that part of the beauty of church? Isn't that part of the church's very story that I can count on you and I can say something like this, I cannot forgive this person right now because my heart is so broken because I cannot believe what this person has done to me. I don't have it in my spirit to offer forgiveness. So would you please consider beginning the forgiveness that I'm not yet able to begin? Will you allow me to see that in you? Will you remind me of what that looks like in a life since I'm not able to generate it at present. See, I believe that's part of the church's narrative. That's part of the church's story. It is a story of ever-expanding forgiveness. And by the way, this struggle with forgiveness is not at all new. Don't think that you're the first person or the first congregation that has struggled with forgiveness. In fact, in the gospel, we saw it. A disciple 
comes to Jesus with a very practical question. Jesus, how often should I forgive a person who has wronged me? And then to keep it from being too open-ended a question, this disciple attaches his own hopeful limit. Uh, Seven times? Is it seven times? And don't you get the impression that perhaps this person has somebody in his life who's offended him, oh, I don't know, maybe six times? (laughs) And he's desperately looking for some authoritative permission from Jesus to say to this person, ah, one more time, man, one more time. How many times, Jesus? Is it seven times? To which Jesus responds, Nice try, but no, not seven times. Seventy-seven times, or as you may have seen it translated, seventy-seven times. And those of you who have spent time studying Scripture and reading Scripture probably already know that for many writers of Scripture, the numbers hold not only a numerical value, but a poetic value, a literary value. You will find biblical authors at different times, for example, using the number seven in very particular fashion. In the New Testament, book of Revelation, which is essentially a poetic vision of God's completed reign, the number seven figures prominently. There are seven churches and seven seals and seven angels holding seven trumpets and seven golden bowls, and that's not coincidence. The audience would have understood that the writer was communicating the perfection, the totality, the completeness of God's reign. That's what seven often meant to the biblical authors, perfection completion, totality, fullness. And it's important to hold that in mind when coming to this moment of Scripture, this moment of teaching from Jesus about forgiveness. He's not making reference when he says 77 or 70 times 7. He's not making reference to a specific number. He's asking us to consider the possibility of a forgiveness that is not burdened by the limits that we are often so eager to place upon it. Don't fixate your spiritual energy upon where to place the limits, Jesus seems to be saying to this disciple and to these disciples. Don't approach it that way. Instead, and this is just my imagery, not in the text, my way of understanding it, see if this helps. Try to think about forgiveness like breathing and do not hold your breath. Breathe it in, breathe it out. Breathe it in, breathe it out so that forgiveness Your forgiveness is not fundamentally grounded in a particular circumstance, but in your existential being. So that forgiveness is not simply something that you try to do. It becomes a part of who you are. Seventy times seven. And why? Why do you think... And I really am curious about this because I don't have definitive answers. Why do you think Jesus would be inclined to put such a strong emphasis upon forgiveness as a defining characteristic of this life lived toward the Lord Jesus? Why would Jesus emphasize forgiveness as being central to that life? And I really would love to talk with you if you have some ideas about that because I don't have that definitive answer, but I do wonder, and all I can say is maybe, but I wonder if it has something to do with the way in which forgiveness can liberate a person from enslavement to the past. And you might have experienced that kind of thing personally. Or I wonder if it has something to do with the way in which forgiveness 
can break the cycle of retribution or contempt or the way in which forgiveness can usher a person out of the kind of hatred that hardens a heart and into the kind of healing that opens a heart. Or it may simply have something to do with the fact that God did not design the human soul to accommodate perpetuated bitterness. I think that was the Grinch's problem, right? His heart had to grow. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that God did not create the soul to accommodate perpetuated bitterness so that when we stubbornly refuse to engage in any portion of the work of forgiveness, we force our souls into a scorn that our souls were not designed to maintain and thereby posture our lives toward a reality that is not God. Look, some of you don't know me very well and I'll make clear to you that I do not have simplistic platitudes for you today related to forgiveness because I know very well that forgiveness is complex, multi-layered, and hard. And the last thing that I would ever want to do is to minimize the severe wrongs that many of you and others have endured. Please hear that. I mean, my goodness, friends, I'm a minister of the gospel. I've spent the better portion of my life figuring out what it means to forgive church people. while at the same time praying that they're forgiving me. So I do not have pie-in-the-sky ideas about the hard realities of forgiveness, and I have no simplistic platitudes for you today. All that I offer is a teaching from Jesus that might inspire us to recognize afresh that this life Paul describes in Romans, this life of discipleship, blossom to blossom, that this life may just demand the reorientation of one's heart so that we day by day might begin to locate or place our perpetuated bitterness gradually on the altar of God's reconfiguring grace. What might that look like for you? What might that demand from you? Have you read the recent article on the Refit family? the Texas mother and father and three adult children who are experiencing devastating conflict in the aftermath of the son in that family tipping off authorities that his father traveled to our nation's capital on that January the 6th armed with a gun and the son was of the opinion that the father was a continuing threat who needed to be stopped, who needed to be held accountable for his actions. And the result of that son's decision was an imprisoned father and a deeply divided family. Father against son, son against siblings, son against mother, wife against husband. Conflict. And maybe the story resonates so much for me because in so many ways it's a microcosm of our divided national family, right? Where I sense so many of us are desperately longing for a vision of what it might mean to value one another's personhood when our political convictions are diametrically opposed, which is not to say that everybody is equally right, which is a philosophical impossibility, right? But we have to live together. <laughs> we have to be family together. And so this divided Refit family mirrors the divided national family 
and both families demand nothing less than a relentless commitment to the spiritual work of forgiveness with accountability. Forgiveness with accountability. And what is the way forward for the Refit family? That's uncertain, the mother said in a recent article. Our way forward as a family is uncertain right now. All I can tell you, she said, is that we're trying to take responsibility for our own actions while committing ourselves to understanding one another's perspectives. I guess, she continued, I guess we're trying to get to a reconciliation that is greater than our politics. And what's interesting to me is that if that article was speaking the truth, the members of the family, after a five-hour family discussion, left the house minus the imprisoned father and went to a nearby Tex-Mex where they laughed and ate enchiladas and attempted to honor the boundaries that they had just established in that five-hour conversation. And that sounds to me, I don't know this to be the case, but that sounds to me like the beginning of what I might describe as a forgiveness journey. And it is a journey for which I am fervently praying, friends, for that divided family, for our divided national family, and dare I say it, for an often divided church. And please be encouraged by the vocabulary, the language that I just used. I called it a forgiveness journey because I believe that's precisely what it is, this 70 times 7 forgiveness that Jesus describes. It is a long, patient, prayerful journey, not a one-time event. And so, as you consider where that kind of forgiveness is most urgently needed in your personal pilgrimage, in your family relationships, in your work relationships, social media, your church relationships. I'm simply inviting you to join me in a continuing contemplation of what the spiritual work of forgiveness with accountability might look like in those circumstances and what that work might demand of you personally. Because Friends, this is the thing that we cannot leave behind. This forgiveness, according to Jesus, is one of the defining characteristics of the life that the Apostle Paul describes, a life of discipleship lived to the Lord Jesus. And who knows, there may just be a sweet, impossible blossom just down the road that a few steps toward forgiveness might enable you to see and experience. In the name of Jesus, may it be so. Amen.